0: hey hope you're well um as ian said we are starting a new series this afternoon and uh, if it wasn't clear the passage that ian read is the passage for the next five weeks Uh, so today uh, i'm preaching on half a verse Uh, so it could be the shortest sermon ever or i could really just labor the point we'll see which way it goes uh that half a verse is the start of verse 42 they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship If you've spent uh, much time at all reading or or chatting to sceptics, then you might have heard of this analogy about the blind men and the elephant. Uh, It goes something like this, there's there's five blind men and they're put in a room with an elephant and they're asked to figure out what it is that's in front of them. Uh, One of the men is standing at the tail and he feels it and he says, this must be a rope. There's another one at the back leg and he feels it and he says, okay, this is a tree trunk. The side of the elephant is a wall, the trunk is a snake, Uh, the tusk is a spear. And there's these five men in the room, and the analogy goes like this, they they all have a little bit of the truth, and none of them can figure out what's really going on. The analogy is often used to say that religion and philosophies, they all just get at a little tiny bit of the truth. They all can get at something, but nobody knows the truth. The conclusion is usually that any claim to truth is not only arrogant, but just false. And um, actually, although that analogy is used against religion, the Bible actually would say that there's a lot of truth in it. The Apostle Paul says that humanity, we have a veil covering our eyes. He's even harsher in Romans 1. He says that all people have suppressed the truth. In unrighteousness it means that according to the worldview of the Bible I'm gonna be harsh if you are not a Christian the Bible says the problem is not that you have a lack of evidence it's that you have glued your eyes shut that is true for all of us naturally we're born with eyes glued shut on purpose because we don't want to see what's true about God in other words the core problem Part of our world of unbelief and confusion is sin. We don't need more evidence. We don't need more pundits giving opinions. We need our eyes to be opened. Why do I say all that? Well, the first of our uh, devotions, if we want to be like the New Testament church, is teaching. And uh, let's jump into it, but we'll say something like this, that God opens our eyes through the teaching of his word and then we respond in devotion to that teaching so let's start with god opens our eyes in the first century uh, one of the earliest christian leaders wrote a letter to his friend who was a, a pastor in another church we call this letter first timothy and uh, in it he encourages him and writes this he says keep a close watch on your teaching By doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers." That feels to me like a bold claim. If someone said, like, you need to make sure your sermon is good this week, because if it is, you might save yourself and your hearers, it feels like pressure to me. How can it be such a matter of life or death? Elsewhere in a letter to Timothy, Paul says that the Bible can make us wise for salvation. What does he mean? Well, we need to start to answer that question, not by kind of running ahead, but by pulling back and saying, when we say we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, what were the apostles' teaching? What does that even mean? Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? And if there's a few verses there, where we're just gonna get a, a small insight into the apostle Paul's preaching ministry. And uh, here's what he says, verses 3 through 5. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So this is it. This is the central thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Later on in his letter, Paul narrows it down even further. He says, I resolve to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, as we're starting, teaching is shorthand for teaching about Jesus. Specifically his life and his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven this is what the apostle Jude called the faith once delivered to all the saints let me say this at Glasgow Grace we are utterly committed to preaching we we value it to the absolute highest degree but we don't value any preaching like I'm giving you permission if one of us gets up here and the name of Jesus isn't in the sermon Like leave, (laughs) just leave because it's not preaching. We are not committed to TED Talks. We're committed to the preaching of Jesus Christ clothed in his gospel. That's what we're about. That's what has the power to bring salvation and freedom and life. Jesus himself said that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not any old teaching, teaching about Jesus. Uh, Eugene Peterson was a, a pastor in America and he wrote the uh, famous message translation of the Bible. And uh, he's one of these guys I just wish was my granddad. Like, you just want to be him when you're old. What a guy. And uh, at his funeral, and then uh, it's going to replicate it in the preface to one of his books, like a legacy edition, uh, his son. Uh, shares this poem that he wrote about his dad, and he just says something wonderful. He says about his dad, it's almost laughable how you fooled them. How for 30 years, every week you made them think you were saying something new. They didn't know what fraud you were. But I know, I know because for 50 years you've been telling me the secret. For 50 years, you've stealed into my room at night and whispered softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over, and you don't vary it one bit. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. He had one message. The Bible has one message. At Glasgow Grace, we have one message. The gospel of Jesus, crucified for your sins, risen again into new life. Teaching is central, not because there's a few of us that love the sound of our own voice. It's central because of the one that we teach about. Let's get back to our elephant that we, we were talking about before. The blind men are lost and confused. There is no hope for them because they're all just arguing. Is it a spear or a wall or what is this thing in front of us? Now scepticism would throw up its hands and say, oh well, we can never know truth. We may as well give up. Christianity says something different altogether. In Christian thought the men are groping around in the darkness and then the elephant speaks and the elephant says, I'm an elephant, (laughs) I'm an elephant, what are you fumbling around for? And in Jesus, we don't just find another pundit saying, well, this is what I think God is like. No, we have God himself with skin on saying, I'm God. This is what God is like. For Christians, we know God because he has revealed himself to us. If you don't know God, here's a promise, cause I've tried it. No amount of groping around or philosophizing or thinking hard will ever get you to God. Apostle Paul warns Timothy about people who are always thinking and never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. That's us, without the light of the world, Jesus, coming in and saying, I'm God, here I am. So why do we teach? We teach so that you will know that in Jesus there's a way into life. We teach so that an unbelieving and confused world might have its eyes Opened to the elephant in the room. Okay, having said all that, I hope you see the importance of what we believe about God. This isn't just intellectual uh, fun that we're doing. We are saved through the light of Jesus that shows us what God is like. But once we're saved, we we don't want to stop. We want to keep pursuing more and more of who God is. On uh, Abby and I's wedding day, we committed to each other. We, in that moment of exchanging vows, were bound together for the rest of our life. The deal was done. That didn't mean that the next day we stopped talking. It didn't mean like, well, I don't need to learn anything else about her because I got her now. No, actually, when when we enter into a relationship with someone, we want to get to know more about them. So here's an example. About this woman here, that's going to embarrass her. I like football, and uh, at the end of the game, I'll start, you know, changing the channel or whatever. And she says, "No, no, 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 stop! Please stop! I like this bit," and I just have to sit there while she watches the players shaking hands and being nice to each other, because the c- the competition made her sad during the game. Like, why were they against each other? She needs to know that they love each other. Remarkable stuff. I did not know that before we got married. It could have been a deal breaker. (laughs) Hey, (laughs) I say that though, because details like that, whether it's your friends or your spouse, whoever, they actually make us love one another more, right? We want to not just know each other, we want to know about each other. Knowing about the people you love stirs your love for them. We want to be devoted not just to knowing enough about God to get over the line of faith but to know enough that the the fires of our affection for Jesus are being stoked day to day. So practically, what would that that look like for us as a church? Ian Ian hinted at the fact that we we just don't think that telling you about the programs we have on or what the people up the front are saying is enough. What What would it look like for us to be devoted to teaching? Well, first we centre God's word in all that we do. From up here, we preach primarily through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We want to understand God's word in the way that God intended it to be understood. It comes out in the songs that we choose to sing. It comes out in our grace communities as we pray scripture over one another. It comes out in many ways, but the the main thing is this, that scripture, God's truth, is utterly central to the mission of his church. That means that second we call each other to value and treasure his word. There's a book uh, about a Chinese man who comes to faith and it's called The Heavenly Man. And uh, in the book, he has this dream about um, a man who miles away in another village, an hour's walk away, has a Bible for him. he wakes up in the morning And instead of just discounting it, he just leaves his house and starts walking to where he thinks the village in the dream was. And he gets to the door that he saw in the dream and he knocks it and the guy gives him a Bible and he walks two, three hours home again. And he does all that, doesn't eat all day, just to get his hands on a Bible. Now, we have Bibles here and here and here, like there's one, they're, they're everywhere. You have the Bible for free in your pocket and yet we have this just disregard don't we We if this complacency about it how can we have that conviction and like just determination to get god's word when it's right here in our pockets well here's something tiny if you want to start when you come to church bring a physical bible there's something about that bring a physical bible and then as you walk through the door, get your phone out, pull down and click airplane mode. And be here and receive the word of God with the word of God in your hand without anything else inputting into you. There's a start. We want to have a posture together, not of indifference or distraction, but of reverence for God's word. When we hear the Bible read at church, it's not just go, okay, this is the bit that I'm just just waiting to get past okay here we go and then then the guy will tell a funny story no like it's god's word the elephant has spoken listen all right lastly we trust the teaching and direction of jesus for our lives we are living in contested territory the writers of the new testament knew this they knew as unpopular as it might be today that there is A very real devil who wants to stop you from knowing and loving Jesus. And the devil's primary tactic is like a propagandist in the war. He's sowing misinformation. He wants you to be led astray from the truth of the Bible. We are at war. And so we need to become people together that are immersed in the teachings of Jesus. Practically, that means that the source of wisdom for our lives doesn't come from our favourite Instagram influencer. It means like the model of the good life that we see on our phones or we see on billboards or wherever, and we just don't trust it. We trust the vision of the good life that Jesus gives us. The world is lying to you, and if we are not careful, the world will knock us over. Put us straight off the path of Jesus. Here's what we need to be doing together. The Apostle Paul says that we should put on the full armor of God to wage war against the devil. And the sword that we wield, he says, is the Word of God. The Word of God. Wield that sword every morning and resist the devil. All right, that's the first aspect of the New Testament church teaching. God opens our eyes through the teaching of his word, and we respond in devotion to that teaching. We don't do it alone, though. The uh, second element from our verse is what Acts calls fellowship. And uh, what we'll find is not only do we need each other, actually, it's the message of Jesus teaching in the first place that brings us together. The Red Cross uh, have carried out a kind of post-pandemic, post-lockdown survey uh, recently on relationships and loneliness, and uh, here's some of the most significant findings. Before the pandemic, one in five people were always or often lonely, but now 41% of adults in the UK say they are more lonely now than 18 months ago. More than a quarter of adults, this is shocking, think that if something were to happen to them, that nobody would know. If they were to keel over in their house, nobody would have a clue. And then, this is the worst one. A third of UK adults haven't had a meaningful conversation in the last week. Science as well is catching up to the deeply damaging effects of that, right? One, one study showed that loneliness has just as significant an effect on your life expectancy as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Add those up, you have what many are calling one of the greatest public health crises of our time. All that to say, sociology and science are only just now catching up to what the word of God has been saying for thousands of years. It is not good for man to be alone. And we know this, and we feel it, and yet we're stubbornly obsessed with self. We're at once cripplingly lonely and deeply self-centered. I was reading a Huffington Post article this week, and uh, the the woman that wrote this uh, gives this advice non-ironically. She left this friendship of 10 years uh, because, quote, she was vibrating at a higher level than her friend. This is her advice, let go of what doesn't serve you, so that you can begin to truly serve yourself. Love yourself enough to acknowledge those in your life that have no place there anymore. Isn't that lovely? Wouldn't you love if your friend of 10 years said, hey, I'm just just vibrating at a higher frequency. (laughs) Come on. If you're on social media, you know that is not a one-off piece of advice. I see this everywhere. We throw people away like rubbish. And then we realize that we're the loneliest generation in history. Something is deeply, deeply wrong. All right, in steps, the gathering of the local church as the solution to our loneliness, what our passage today calls fellowship. Just as before, here's where we're going. We've been adopted into the fellowship of the Trinity, and we are devoted to one another in fellowship as a new humanity in Christ. Imagine with me two separate married couples. The first couple are a little bit bored, The uh, the joy of their relationship went out years ago and they're looking for something to rekindle their romance. So they decide, let's have, let's have a kid. Let's see if that does it. And they have a baby and the baby comes along and they love them. The baby is there to complete them. Right, they finally have something to focus on. Love is back in their lives. And I had a hypothetical second couple, but let's say John and Vicky, guys that are madly in love and their home is full of joy and warmth and people say, man, these guys are incredible and they adopt or have children from the overflow of their love. Right, that, that's our second couple. They don't need anything, but from the overflow of their love for one another, they start a family. Question is, which of those sounds more like God's motivation for creating and saving you. Why did God create? Was he bored and alone in eternity, needing somebody to hang out with? Did God create you and save you to put the spark back into his life? The Bible doesn't describe it that way at all. The Bible describes a God who is love and who acts from the overflow of that love. God's goodness spills out of him and into everything that he makes and does. That is only possible because God is Trinity. And this is one that we just like to be, ah, I don't know, it's too confusing, I can't figure it out, and we ignore it. Well, let me just say this, God existed eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That means that if God had never created anything, he would have existed forever in a community of love and it's only because it's in God's nature to communicate and spread his love among the persons of the Trinity that he can create it all. Everything technical aside, God is a God of love because the Father has always been a Father and the Son of God has always been a Son. At the heart of the universe is a God who is family. This is why one of the Bible's favorite ways of describing salvation is adoption. Now these guys are just stepping on everything I'm trying to say. (laughs) We saw earlier that God sends his word into the world to reveal himself to us and to save us. But what does he save us into? The answer is he saves us into a family. John chapter 1 verse 12 says that all who believed in his name that's the name of jesus he gave the right to become children of god so the reason that you have been saved is to be folded into the trinitarian family of love we are saved so that you might become a child of the father theologian uh, mike reeves puts it this way he says if god were only a single person salvation would look entirely different. We would remain distant hirelings, never to hear the golden words that the Son says to the Father, you have loved them, even as you have loved me. But our God comes to us himself, the Father rejoicing to share his love for his Son, sending him that in him, we might be brought back into the Father's bosom, there by the Spirit to call him Abba, Father, We are adopted into eternal, loving fellowship. That's going to lead us very quickly into our being in fellowship with one another. But first, let me say this. If we have in Christ been adopted into the Trinitarian family, then the fellowship of the church becomes the solution to all of our relational messiness. If you are alone, come to Jesus and be folded into the love of God's family. If you have been discarded, then come to Jesus and be adopted by a God who is Father. The church is more than a group that just agree on some ideas. The church is the fulfillment of God's promise in the Psalms that He sets the lonely in families. It's not just any old family. But by the overflow of God's love, we have been adopted into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The foundation of our devotion to fellowship is our devotion to the gospel that we teach. Let's keep moving. We're adopted into fellowship and therefore we commit to one another in fellowship. Uh, A few years back, a high profile former pastor was uh, interviewed about his evolving views on church. And uh, he spoke about his little tribe of friends that would hang out in a California beach, go surfing, and he would sometimes teach the Bible. And uh, he said this, he said, we're churching all the time. It's more of a verb for us. You won't be surprised that we think that is rubbish. We think it's rubbish. If we have been folded into the life of the Trinity through Jesus... Church is not just surfing. There's all sorts of reasons for that, but here's the one that's relevant today. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, do not neglect meeting together as some have the habit of doing. The Bible is at pains to make it clear that Christianity is not your path to enlightenment. It's not just like the alternative to kind of modern Buddhism or you know a great diet, it's not one option of many. It's your adoption into a new family. So what does that look like? Well, most obviously, especially since you're already here, is that we gather all together. Elsewhere in the book of Acts, we read that the disciples gathered on the Sabbath in the synagogue and then the rest of the week they gathered in their homes. Together, That's that's what we're after when we kind of model our weeks on Sundays together, Grace Communities and Homes in the Week. That's where that comes from. Uh, But most importantly, however it looks, we gather. We come together. The Bible says that Jesus is the head and the church is the body. That means that if you want Jesus without his people, then you have to be willing to decapitate God. That's just creepy. Don't do it. It's idolatrous. If you want Jesus, you get his people thrown in with him. You can't separate them. It also means that we embrace discomfort for the sake of God's family. The Bible's not under illusions that community is easy. But we're still called to love one another. Here's a practical challenge. Those with t-shirts on that say, welcome three people in here are not the only ones that are supposed to be welcoming everyone. After church finishes today, are you going to beeline for your friends or will you welcome somebody new? Will you speak to someone that's not necessarily just like you? When we welcome one another with the welcome of Jesus, we look like heaven on earth. The world is crying out for the welcome of God. And we deprive them of that when we bubble up and leave it to people with t-shirts on. All right, lastly, it means that we prioritize one another over ourselves. We're, uh, we're tricked by the fact that if I said right now, you're engaging really well with the sermon, you wouldn't know if I was talking to one person or all of you, because the word you in English can mean one person or a hundred. Right, but the Bible, which we don't see, is littered with what Americans might call y'alls. <laughs> or, if you're from Glasgow, yous. <laughs> not you, use. <laughs> Practically, that means that like, we, we start treating each other in the way that we wish others treated us. If, if this thing is not written to you, but to use then we're in this together. It means we give away what we have to one another and we hoist others above ourselves. We celebrate each other's achievements and we mourn one another's losses because we're all part of the same body. I love this one author puts it this way. He says, church is joining your imperfect self to many other imperfect selves to form an imperfect community that through Jesus embarks on a journey toward a better future. I think that's wonderful. If you're not a Christian and you're here and you're still kind of thinking, what is church? There you go, we are imperfect people, joined together with other imperfect people, journeying with Jesus towards a better future. You are more than welcome to join us on that journey. We are saved by the power of the gospel that we find in the teaching of the Bible. God finds us as orphans blind and lost and by the power of his word Jesus he opens our eyes picks us up and adopts us into his family. The church is a community of truth in an age of confusion and unbelief. It is a community of deep connection in a world of loneliness and individualism. We are a colony of heaven on earth. That's why we teach. That's why we have fellowship with one another.